when you're preparing sermons, uh, how sometimes God takes your introduction or other parts of your sermon and he just asks you to put a big line through everything that you had just written or thought or said and to change it. So I want you to do something with me. If you have uh, a program, you might notice that the title of this sermon is Cultivating Conviction. You can just put a line through that. And you can put a line through the verses, too. Uh, We're only going to cover verses 1 through 10. And uh, you can write in instead, walking by faith in real time, for the title of the sermon. You see, to lead where you are, you must grow in faith. You must trust God. Any God-sized vision that God gives us requires God to be in the lead. And if we don't walk by faith, if we walk by sight instead, well then, we're operating in our own power and we're not going to advance his kingdom agenda that he has for this world. Now how does this faith thing work out? You know, you hear preachers say things like, walk by faith. And you think to yourself, well that's great. I would love to do that at some point, but faith just seems like this foggy notion. Sure, I'm going to believe that God will do things, but how does he lead me in the midst of that or lead me in real time? I think that God regularly leads us through vision and conviction. Vision is a picture in our mind of what could be. There's a state of reality that is present today. It's not how it should be. And we have a vision of the future of what could be. And that's where conviction comes in because conviction is that moral sense of what should be. So God does that. He starts with the state of reality. As we read the scriptures or as we come to know the character of God and we see what is happening in the world, our eyes are opened up and like Nehemiah last week in chapter 1, God breaks our heart for the state of things. See, Nehemiah had heard a report about a wall crumbled around a city that was once great. But he wasn't crying just because of the city. He wept because God's glory was at stake. God's greatness was less visible to the world. The place that he had chosen to have his name dwell was devastated. Now, where does vision come into play? Well, vision comes in when Nehemiah closes his eyes and he sees a restored Jerusalem. He sees a reconstituted, regathered people of God. He can close his eyes and see them in a state of security, freely able to worship him. And maybe God has given you a dream. Maybe there are moments where you close your eyes and You see your children walking with the Lord. Or you see a personal ministry taking shape in your mind and, oh, that would be great if God could use me in this sort of way. When I close my eyes, I see a picture of Cape Cod where people are coming back to God, where they're making him a priority in your life. Remember we talked about the problem last week. One church for every 8,889 people here on Cape Cod. The norm should be one church for every 500 people. 
which means we're only at 5% of church saturation. But here's what is tough with vision. Vision is a picture of an ideal world, but it's not the roadmap on how to get there. You're seeing Z at the end of the alphabet. You don't really know how B through Y are going to come together. And so people get this picture of their, in their mind of what could be because they recognize what should be, but they give up along the way. They stop because getting there is tough. And the only way that we can get there is if God takes the lead, if we walk by faith. But how do I do that, you say? Well, I think as we look at our text this morning that Nehemiah is going to model for us the real time of walking by faith. It's pretty cool when you look at it. So we're going to see three principles this morning from our text on what it means to walk by faith. The first is that part of walking by faith requires patience. Be patient. Wait on God. Look with me at the first three verses of chapter 2. Nehemiah says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Have you ever had a boss or someone in charge for that matter who wouldn't budge. I mean, you come to them with a different perspective, with an idea, and if anyone on my staff is shaking their heads right now, you know, (laughs) don't. Um, You know, the boss listens to what you're saying and they say something along these lines, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Just get with the program. Well, there's a reason that during this day and age that uh, we have a saying, or a saying today that says, don't try to change things. It's like the law of the Medes and the Persians. You know, Artaxerxes wasn't known for his willingness to move on positions. And Nehemiah understood this. He knew that if he was going to see this wall be built, that he would need to change the heart of the king. You see, the history here is interesting. At the beginning of his reign, Artaxerxes had actually halted the building program around Jerusalem. If you look at Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, the king made this decree. Make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. So Nehemiah is essentially asking for a policy change here. And sure, He had a loophole. He'd said, if I decide later on to change things, but who would expect an unmovable man like Artaxerxes to do an about-face? And maybe you can relate to that situation because when God calls us to lead where we are, it's very 
infrequent that we find ourselves holding the reins of power. We're not usually in the decision-making chair. I mean, that would be easy, wouldn't it? If Nehemiah is sitting in Artaxerxes' chair, then he could just simply say, well, you know, guys, we're going to go back to the budget. We're going to add a little line item in here. We're going to reallocate some resources, some financial resources over to Jerusalem and, and move some people resources there as well. But rarely are things that easy. Often, God calls us to walk by faith and the pathway from A to B to Z is not very direct. So with Nehemiah, he's going to need to have God show up. God is going to have to change the heart of this man. And that's exactly what he prayed. Look with me back at verse 11 of chapter 1. Nehemiah says, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's praying, God, change his heart. I, I can't lift a single brick if this man doesn't say so. I'm in Susa. I'm 800 miles away from Jerusalem. I can't take a step in that direction unless you move unless you show up and change this heart. And what happened after this grand prayer? Nothing. Nehemiah poured his heart out to God and for four months, nothing. See, when you look at the text of chapter 1, it tells us that he's in the month of Kislev, which is around December, and then the story advances all the way to the month of Nisan, which is around April. Four months. Have you ever prayed like that? Reoccurringly? Prayed, waited, prayed, waited, nothing. Family member? A situation in your life that you would like to see change? Remember, just a couple of weeks ago, Harry brought up this application from the book of Thessalonians. I just had a breakfast with uh, one of my friends. We were talking about some of the application from Nehemiah chapter 2, and he said, Rob, I prayed for five years for God to move in the heart of my superiors so that I could be at church on Sunday morning. Five years! I've known people that have prayed much longer than that for things. Why does God want us to wait? Why do you want your kids to wait? I was just thinking about this. Um, my son, Zach, loves fishing. And I really like that, a little chip off the old block, if you know what I'm saying. Um, now, just imagine this scenario with me. He comes up to me one afternoon and he says, Daddy, I really want to go fishing today. I want to go catch a big fish and I'm going to catch a bigger fish than you're going to catch. And I look at him and I smirk a little bit and it's probably true because little kids get little kid luck. And I say to him, Zach, we're going to go fishing, but I just need to do a couple of things before we can go. Now, in his little world, that's a big deal. I mean, he just 
offered up his heart. He wanted to go fishing with daddy and, and, and one minute passes and two minutes passing and he's watching me do things and it's just welling up inside of him until finally he just says, well, I can't handle this anymore. And he gets behind me and he starts pushing my back and he's trying to push me out the door and he's trying to push me towards the car and he's trying to push me towards the pond. Now I would imagine that Zach would find a much different daddy in that moment, my legs would become like stone pillars. And I might get a little more stern with him and say, son, you need to be more patient. Now, why don't I want Zach to operate like that in life? I mean, can you imagine him as an adult trying to push things along? He would be running all over people. And I imagine that that's quite an exhausting way to live. I wonder how many of us are spiritually exhausted because we haven't learned to wait on God. We pray that famous American prayer, Lord, teach me to be patient and I want it now. <laughs> We're standing behind God. We're attempting to push him to move and to act, we're frustrated because his legs are planted like stone pillars. Wouldn't it be much easier for Zach if he just waited 20 minutes? I mean, if he were to wait, well, I would step out and take the lead. I would get all the gear together. I'd pack up the car. I would even go above and beyond anything he could think to ask. I would pack snacks for the trip. But boy, that's a lot easier, isn't it? It's less exhausting. We're going to have a great time because he's letting me take the lead. Are you letting God take the lead in your prayer life? Are you waiting on him? Are you determining in your mind when enough is enough? Are you tempted to say to yourself, well, if God doesn't act within this time window, then I'm going to need to step out on my own and lead the situation myself. And when we wait, we find that God will move and that when he steps out and takes the lead, wow, a lot more things happen he goes above and beyond anything that we could think, ask, or imagine in the situation. Remember that principle from Ephesians 3.20. So here's another leadership principle for you. Look at um, that principle up there. Leaders understand that waiting can be essential. Remember, there are tons of leadership books that have been written in our modern era. Much ink has been spilt. But the best book on leadership that has ever been written is God's Word, the Bible. They're taking all of their cues from God's Word. So Nehemiah understood this. He patiently prayed and waited for months, and a great work uh, for God requires God to lead, and so he's waiting for God to take the first step. You can think of it like this in a concert, the concert of life. God is the great conductor. If he's calling you into leadership, he's asking you to play a solo in the arrangement. Now, there are times that when you have that a solo, you're sitting there waiting upon the conductor to introduce your part. You're leading where you are. You're going to be called to step out front, but the composition has to play out first. 
So imagine, though, if you were to play your part too soon in the arrangement. Boy, that doesn't sound very good, does it? The instruments are playing over you. Your solo doesn't stick out. And you're probably playing notes that don't make sense with the context of where the song is in the moment. Patience is so important. And Nehemiah waited to play his solo. And when the great conductor called him to start playing, boy, it was beautiful. Now, I want to think about this from another angle for a moment. Be positioned. This is another principle. Look at your circumstances differently. Sometimes we look at our situation and the great conductor, we're waiting for him to call us to play our part, and we think to ourselves, not only do I not know when I'm supposed to play in the arrangement, but I'm looking at my instrument and I am holding a tuba. Wouldn't it have been better if I had a violin? We feel like we're holding the wrong instrument. Now you think to yourself, well, if God wants me to do something big for his kingdom, why am I stuck here doing something that's not remotely close to anything that would help to advance his kingdom? I mean, I imagine that Nehemiah prayed something similar to this. I'm 800 miles away from Jerusalem. I want to be building a wall. Why am I serving wine at this time? Perhaps you've dreamed about opening up a business And you said to yourself, you know, if God would use me in this way, I could bring much glory to him. Or maybe it's a career pathway change for you. Or maybe it's a spouse that you've been praying for. God, let them come to know Jesus. Or maybe you look at the state of unreached people on Cape and say to yourself, that's huge. That's a big problem, but I'm an accountant. What can I do? Whatever the case is, it's overwhelming. And we think to ourselves, I'm just me. But that's always the case when God puts something on our hearts. The task appears out of reach because the task is out of reach. We're never going to find that our circumstances are perfect to accomplish the work of God. We're always going to feel like we're holding the wrong instrument when he calls us to solo. But God knows what he's doing. He wrote the arrangement. He actually knows that the tuba would do quite well at this moment in the song. He knows why you're holding the instrument you're holding. I think of an author who said this about Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah is in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. I want you to think about his life with me for a moment. And then put your life next to it as you think through this. God would have had to move many things through the course of Nehemiah's life for him to be positioned in the place he was at the time he was there. He would have had to um, engineer the circumstances that would lead to Nehemiah serving in the palace. He would need to do some movements in Nehemiah's life to where his supervisors would see him working. They would see things like integrity. They would see skill, efficiency in what he's doing. And then at some point, he would have to have had one of those supervisors go up to either one of the king's trusted people or the king himself and say, bring him on your team. He's really good at what he does. Now just imagine that. 
If I was to create a direct pathway to this situation, I would have Nehemiah moving towards Jerusalem, not towards Susa. But he's right where he needs to be. He has a special relationship with the king. This is why when you look at the first part of um, verse, or the second part of verse one, that he can be sad in the presence of the king. These eastern monarchs, they would uh, build a facade around themselves. They wanted everything to be happy. And uh, if you killed their, if you rained on their parade with your sadness, what, what do you think happened? Right? Well, Nehemiah is different, right? He is standing before the king. He's brokenhearted, and the king takes pity on him. He was able to make a, a policy point to the king without being political. In fact, I can't imagine, as I think through this, of another Jew in all of the Persian Empire who would have been able to say these specific words to this king at this time. Leadership principle number six. Leaders believe that God can work in and through their circumstances to accomplish his will. You lead where you are. I'm wondering where you are. Maybe he has called you to a place of work and you're the only Christian light there. Maybe you feel like you're playing the wrong instrument, but you're actually playing just the right instrument because God has placed you here to be a model of integrity to these people, to let them see that your convictions drive you in this life. They determine the decisions that you're making. Maybe they've watched you suffer. You want to see if your convictions line up with reality? Go through suffering. Suffering really pinpoints what you believe. Is it true? And people are watching. I think of moms. I often hear language in motherhood that sounds something like, I feel like I'm holding the wrong instrument. There's a lot of pressure to be a mom today. You have to raise the perfect kids. Anyone done that yet? You have to execute a career pathway that is advancing. And then there's this foggy, who even knows what it is, Pinterest perfect world that we have to create around ourselves as well. I mean, who can do that? No one. Or maybe you're thinking of it from the other angle and you're saying to yourself, well, God hasn't given me a child yet and Mother's Day just doesn't feel special at all to me. Or my life is taking such a shape that it just feels like this day is more of a, a day of mourning than a day of happiness. Am I holding the wrong instrument? You're not. God can work powerfully through your circumstances to accomplish his glory, to advance his kingdom. I love that video that we showed with Olga. Um, I worked with Olga for quite a bit of years in the youth context. And I tell you, you just can't even believe how effective she was at working with teenagers. They called her Mama Olga. You have these, these teenage boys 
that project that front, that hard nose, I don't need anybody kind of teenage boy, crying their little hearts out to Mama Olga. Play the instrument that the Lord has given you. Use it for the sake of his glory, and he will advance his purposes in and through you. Now look at Nehemiah, verse 4. The king said to me, what are you requesting? (laughs) So I prayed to the God of heaven. Have you ever been in the middle of a prayer request being answered? You're standing right there and you've been praying and praying and praying and suddenly the door flings wide open. And the only thing you need to do is first pray and then take the step forward, right? This is what Nehemiah models for us. Now, I want you to see something very important in the text. We're going to read verses 4 through 8, and we're going to see another principle. When God opens up the door, be prepared. Be ready to move when God moves. So let's read the text. Verse 4. The king said to me, what are you requesting? And I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the providence beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. Let's come back to that concert analogy for a moment. God is the great conductor. There are times that he assigns you a solo. You're waiting for your time to play your part, and indeed, you are holding the right instrument. Now imagine this scene. The music's playing. The audience is mesmerized. The conductor is beautifully weaving an arrangement that ebbs and flows, that takes twists and turns, and suddenly, as you're watching him, waiting for your part to play, He brings the orchestra down low and he points his baton to you. Only you had spent so much time trying to learn when you're going to play your part and worried about the instrument that you're holding that you never actually prepared to play anything. The gaze of the entire audience is on you in this moment and yet don't even know the first note to strike up. I wonder how often we pray long and hard for something, but we don't prepare for it to happen. I mean, can you imagine that? Lord, act on my behalf, do something big, but we don't have the faith to actually expect it to happen. We're not ready to take the next steps. Notice that that is not the case with Nehemiah. He's ready for his solo. He's been praying for four months. He's been searching God for a plan. He wasn't just simply praying, God, rebuild the wall. He was praying, God, how do you want me to rebuild the wall? And when the king asked him, what are you requesting? He had a plan. That's the seventh leadership principle. It's very simple. Leaders have a plan. They come to the table prepared. Notice he asks for two things. 
in the first uh, verses four through six, he says, send me. And then later he asks, give me. Two letters, verses seven and eight. He had come to the table prepared so that when he said, send me, and the king follows it up with a question, well, how long are you going to be gone? He had already determined a time. And in addition to that, he was able to follow up with an ask for two letters. See, I believe that those four months of prayer were crucial for Nehemiah. If he's anything like me or if he would have operated like I would, I would hear that there's a problem. I would rush off with like a little proto plan formed in my mind and I would make a big mess out of everything. But Nehemiah is praying and he's letting God develop a plan that is thorough and effective. Look at how this plays out in the next couple of verses. If you look at verse 9 and 10, Nehemiah is on the road, he's journeying, and he comes to the governors of the providence beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Notice that when God takes the lead, he gives you more than you had asked for. He didn't ask for this, uh, these soldiers to come along, but the king goes above and beyond. Now verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sanballat and Tobiah. If you read Nehemiah, you know that these guys are bad dudes. They're the opposition. When God gives you a vision to do something for his glory in the world, expect Sanballat and Tobiah to show up. They are the naysayers. If you try this, well, something bad's going to happen. Their whole life is one big negative. They've got that critical spirit that looks at everything uh, through the negative lens. There's always an underlying agenda, and it typically has something to do with power. When you are casting a vision, when God gives you a dream, people generally receive a vision in three different ways. There are those who hear the vision and they're inspired. Oh, if only the world would change in that way, that would be beautiful. Then there's the guy that just wants to go home and cut his grass after he heard you tell the vision. Just doesn't really care. And then there are those types who get annoyed. What do you mean you're going to disrupt the status quo? What do you mean you're going to take me out of my comfort zone? Don't be those guys. When God has given us vision as a church, let's be the type that get inspired, who want to move forward with it. Well, Nehemiah's plan um, prevented a lot of the headache. Uh, When you look at the fact that he came out of Jerusalem, Um, If he had not planned, he would have showed up with Sanballat and Tobiah, and it would have gone something like this. Um, Yeah, so you're not going to come through my providence. Who said you could? But he backed up the situation in his mind, didn't he? And so when these guys come to him and they say, on whose authority... Are you going to Jerusalem? He could just simply say, well, uh, you know, there's this, this guy, you've probably heard of him. His name's Artaxerxes. You know, just drops that bomb, doesn't he? Oh, and 
And here's my letter of referral, by the way. I believe that planning and organizing bring God honor. We're talking about working out faith, aren't we? And there's this notion that people put forward that planning and faith are somehow at odds with one another. At odds. I mean, I think of it like this. If we believe that God is going to grow this church and bring in new people, it takes faith to plan and organize the church to receive them. At some point, God might call this church to play the solo. And what if we're sitting there with the instrument in hand and saying to ourselves, well, I didn't really prepare for that, God. I'm sorry. I think of it, I had a breakfast appointment with a man from church and he was talking about how he's been praying for God to give him opportunities to share the gospel. And he asked me a question. He said, Rob, uh, what can I say to kind of lead these conversations into spiritual matters? What's he doing? He's planning. He's preparing by faith that God is going to give him these gospel opportunities And he wants to be ready to step through the door when the door opens up. Nehemiah planned for God to move, and when the king asked, he had a well-formed, clear plan, and the king granted his request. It was his first public success. There's that word, huh? Success. You see, when God gives you a dream, at some point the dream might start coming to fruition and success might come. I want to ask you a question as we close. Can you handle public success? Could you handle it if God gave you a professional quality singing voice and a platform to use it? Could you handle it if he blessed you financially? Could I handle it? If God chose to grow this church to where people were literally flowing out the doors. I find it sobering when I hear these words. Few things distort our perspective like public success. The rewards that accompany success can turn a humble man or woman into a tyrant. Success often leads to self-sufficiency. Rare is the successful individual who has not lost sight of what he would be without God. The depth and authenticity of our faith determines in part our ability to handle success. Success has that way of giving us God-dependence amnesia. When we experience it, It can be easy to step out into the spotlight and say, look at me. Look at what I've done. Nehemiah didn't develop amnesia. He remembered God. Look at that verse 8. The king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?